You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Fergus Bordewick. Mr. Bordewick is the author of Congress at War, How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America. Mr. Bordewick has written several books of history, including The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government, and Washington, the Making of an American Capital. He holds degrees from City College of New York and Columbia University. His articles have been published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Reader's Digest, among many other publications and periodicals. Mr. Bordewick, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Robert. It's a great pleasure to be here. Anytime anyone writes a book about the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln looms large. I've read William C. Davis's books on the Confederacy and Jefferson Davis. They're superb. But in the background is always President Abraham Lincoln. Is that something that you felt when you were writing your book on Congress at War? It has to be said, Lincoln truly was an extraordinary individual. It it, it can't be a surprise that that Americans continue to be fascinated by him and uh, to feel a... (laughs) his charisma, if you like, 150 years later. Uh, Here's a guy who came from nowhere. He he, uh, represents a quintessential American aspirational story, guy who came from nothing, self-educated, and became an extraordinary, largely self-educated national leader who uh, we have to be grateful for was the president at the time of the Civil War. Uh, Now, that said, um, uh, Lincoln was a work in progress during the war as a political man. Bear in mind, he had uh, been a, only a one-term congressman uh, before he became president, as well as holding office in Illinois. Uh, he had virtually no national political experience, although he was quite respected in the Republican Party. Uh, but he was a beginner in Washington. Uh, and uh, uh, 
he faced intense criticism, uh, even at times great opposition from within the Republican Party, from staunch uh, Republicans, unionist Republicans, who regarded him as much too small, weak, and narrow for the job at hand, that is, carrying the country through a war that, in truth, almost nobody expected. Uh, Both Northerners and Southerners expected the war, if there was to be a war at all, to end in a couple of months, uh, with very, very little bloodshed. In the end, it took perhaps 750,000 lives, north and south. The numbers are still a a bit... uncertain you make a great point that abraham lincoln was a novice when it come when it came to governance certainly had let's correct me if i'm wrong had no executive level executive sphere uh, experience and yet the members of congress with whom he had to work had cumulative hundreds of years of experience is that something that you believe was was felt by Lincoln A and B used by prominent congressmen and senators against Lincoln during the war? Well, uh, Lincoln was a Whig for many years before he was a Republican, before the Republican Party was founded. And Whigs regarded Congress as the central engine of American government. And indeed, most Americans did in the 19th century. Today, uh, we almost universally regard the presidency as the great driving engine of government in Washington. Everybody waits to see what the president will do in his first 100 days, waits for the president to set the national agenda. That was not true in the 19th century. Uh, It didn't become true until well into the 20th probably mainly with uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So we have to look at government in a different way. Lincoln, as a good Whig, uh, now a Republican, uh, expected Congress to set the national agenda. Now, the war, the war became the agenda. Uh, And the great question uh, facing uh, both Congress and Lincoln was, can the country survive the war? How can the country fight the war? Uh, how is the Union war effort to be led? These are all open questions. And behind that, the very real anxiety that the North might not win the war. It was not a foregone conclusion in 1861, or even until finally 1864, that uh, the, the Union, the North, was going to prevail. So, uh, Lincoln came into office with a great deal of, let's say, respect for the institution of Congress. He did not regard members of Congress as a bunch of louts and 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 and, and you know, empty talkers. He had respect for them. I mean, he himself had been a legislator, as you pointed out. He had no executive experience at all. Um, uh, and. In the beginning, his his early presidency was fairly clumsy, as it is for most new presidents, uh, other than those who may have been a vice president beforehand. Uh, He really was not very sure what the job was going to be and what was it going to be required of him. Uh, 
there were very forceful personalities in Congress. Uh, a couple of them are people I write about in the book. Ben Wade, a man from, from your neighboring state of Ohio, a uh, man whose name we should all remember, but generally don't anymore. Uh, very forceful um, uh, member of the Senate, uh, Thaddeus Stevens from, from, from Pennsylvania, also an extremely forceful uh, member of the House. Many others, Charles Sumner of Massachusetts. These were strong people with great visions of the country. And, and the ones I've cited here were very, very strong proponents of a hard war from the beginning. Fight the war to the conclusion the South is not going to, is not going to uh, surrender easily. Uh, compromise with the South is a fool's errand. Uh, Lincoln, uh, like many Republicans, had a, I, I don't want to call it a fantasy, but it's close to a fantasy of a huge popular uh, um, Southern resistance to the Confederacy, a vast unionist sentiment in the South, which only had to be uh, uh, which would rise to the surface. It didn't exist. It did not exist. It was modest. And uh, in, in your point about the senators and congressmen, they were a part of Lincoln's cabinet. So he chose people who had served in Washington as part of, of his inner circle. Uh, Seward being one of them, who was William Seward, Secretary of State, was Chase a senator or Salem he, Chase? He was initially a senator. Uh, uh, with a, he had been a governor of Ohio, right? Then a senator, and was a, a we many people now recognize was a great rival of Lincoln. He was regarded as a radical, as probably the most radical member of the cabinet. So he had so Lincoln had that mentality, that group of people with that experience within his cabinet. And I think most people would agree that that Lincoln's cabinet was on on general generally spoken of highly. Yes. A group of very strong, very yeah. smart men. So he had that mentality. So he was used to it. So he brought those men in. Your point a few minutes ago about this great unionist sentiment, I always find it interesting that the people who believed let me say it a different way. A lot of the people who believed in the hard war aspect, that approach, were people who had been in D.C. for a long time and therefore had interacted with these southern reps and senators who were so sectionally frenetic. I can't even think of the term. Their devotion to the South, the Jefferson Davises of the world and and. Um, the senators from all over the South who, who said, we hate you, you know, don't come down here. We hate you. Uh, they understood the people in Congress. They understood exactly the mentality of these Southern leaders. And it seemed to me that Lincoln did not. And the proximity they had through serving in Washington was the, was the foundation of that. that that's a good observation. I, I agree with you. It's true. Uh, and many, many of these men, William Seward, for example, Interesting character in his own right. Maybe we'll talk more about him after. But uh, had been in in uh, the Senate, also a former governor of New York, had been in the Senate for many years, and was a major player, a 
he was very radical at the time in the debate over the Compromise of 1850, uh, a decade before the war, uh, when when Southern members of, of Congress on the floor of Congress repeatedly threatened secession then. Most Americans don't realize how close uh, we came to seeing secession in 1850. Uh, the 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 point of debate was the ex- whether slavery would or would not be allowed to expand across the West. I don't want to I won't digress into that, but at any rate, uh, secession was very close in 1850, and people like Wade, like like Seward, we've already mentioned, and and others uh, heard this. They saw this. Uh, in fact, the threat of secession. Southerners had used the threat of secession as a club uh, over the national government since its founding. I wrote a book, as you mentioned, about the first Congress. During the period of the first Congress, that's 1789 to 1791, Southern members of Congress are threatening secession uh, if the very subject of slavery is even brought up for discussion. Uh, And yes, uh, so there was there was an attitude, wasn't there, of like, well, then just good riddance. Then Jefferson Davis and Hal Cobb and uh, Mason and all these all these reps and senators who were in D.C. or in the Capitol, along with the states they represented, just like go take your cotton, take your slaves. You're going to come back to us. The hell with you. We're tired of dealing with you. There was that was that sense of mentality that really came through your book that is like okay, we're tired of being bullied by you. Go do your thing. Yeah, the counterweight to that, you're you're, you're right that that sentiment exists. It tended to be strongest at the very radical end of the abolitionist movement uh, and felt most strongly by people who felt the entire country was corrupted by having slaveholding under the national government and tainting the entire uh, um, operation of the United States. Now, the counterbalance to that is something that I think is less visible to us today than it was 150 years ago, which was a truly passionate belief in the idea of union. Uh, Now, I mean, we all are patriots today uh, of varying degrees on the political spectrum, at least points of view, not degrees, but points of view. Uh, But the remember in 1860, the 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 country is only seventy five years old or so, uh, and the fathers and certainly grandfathers of the people who are governing the United States in eighteen sixty fought the revolution. Uh, they created the Constitution. Uh, they built a country that uh, that is the was the first of its kind in the world, and the the sense. And the idea of having created this, this entity, the United States, was really intense. And at the beginning of the war, if you read the letters of men who fought for the Union, most frequently uh, they, they write uh, about the urgency of saving the Union. Uh, I mean, today we don't worry about the Union disintegrating in any serious way, at any rate. Uh, so it's it's kind of that the problem was solved and it doesn't register with us as Americans today in a, I think, a deep, visceral way. In 1860, it was visceral. It was intense. 
and uh, uh, Americans were incredibly proud of having this unique country. And they, uh, I'll just say one more thing on this, that uh, they knew that, that if secession succeeded and one big piece of the United States broke off, it would set a precedent and there would be more. They knew the West Coast would probably secede California, Oregon, uh, Washington Territory as well, perhaps even the upper Midwest. So they understood that the ramifications of secession would be a catastrophe. And to bring up the 16th president again, to your point, one of the reasons that Lincoln is so fondly remembered is that nobody articulated that sense of union better than he did mystic chords of memory and other phrases that he used in his speeches that he he put words he mobilized the american language in defense of union in a way that we remember to this day yes yes he had an extraordinary gift for language and uh uh uh, he, he would if the if the um uh Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Prize uh, uh, existed in that day. Lincoln would be an, would be a candidate for, well, for spoken literature, let's say. Uh, but the Oscar, <laughs> but for written speeches as well. His language is mag- magnificent, and it, it's true. He touched people in a profound way. Uh, while while drawing no moral equivalency, of course, the radicals who supported secession and, and the Confederacy, the, the consanguinity between them and the ra- radical Republicans in Congress would seem to be pretty high. They were both ra- they both sets of radicals, both ready for the fight to finally end this one for all. But in your book, you talk about how single-minded the radicals were towards the harshness of what it is going to take in the punishment that the Confederates deserve when they are ultimately bested on the battlefield. So the mentality, please speak to that, the mentality of the Confederate radicals and the mentality of the Republican radicals are basically the same with radically different goals. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, uh, Southern radicals, uh, had one overarching interest, which was to protect slavery. Uh, Anybody who today suggests that the Civil War occurred or secession occurred over anything other than the the desire for both, uh, well, economic and other reasons to protect slavery, frankly, is living in a a delusion. Completely agree. Absolutely right. Every compromise involved slavery. It didn't involve tariffs. It didn't involve anything else. Yeah. And if any listeners uh, want to argue the point, I just suggest that they go and read. You can get it online, get them all online. The ordinances of secession of the southern states. It's all there. Uh, They explain precisely why secession was occurring and it was slavery. So let's put that on the side. Um. And, I mean, Southern radicals, zealots on behalf of slavery, uh, as Ulysses Grant uh, much later said, were were prepared to fight for the worst cause ever in human history, 
which was the degradation of other human beings. And you can say, well, it was a different age. People believed differently. Some did, some didn't. Uh, because uh, the, the concept of human rights and inequality was evolving. It was evolving in the North in the direction that uh, uh, we have largely embraced today in the South and whole intellectual architecture of, of, of um, the degradation of African-Americans was being constructed. It had an intellectual structure behind it. John Calhoun. That's uh, a positive it, good. Yeah. A positive in, a, in, a, good. in a religious underpinning, God, God is the one who has created this hierarchy between the races and who are we to upend it. Precisely forever. And, and, uh, I mean, Northern radicals uh, were quite different. I think these were people who had a much larger view, a larger view of humanity, a larger view of America, frankly, uh, a larger view of patriotism, a larger view of the United States. And they are radical only in the context of their time. What was the radicalism of the 1860s is largely universally accepted. In most parts of our country today, uh, which is to say, uh, even the ideology of the Republican Party, which was which looked towards national development, um, uh, the building of national infrastructure. Southerners, Southerners stood in the way of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, Northerners, including radicals, wanted to build it. I'm just setting one example right. here, and and the Republican Party embraced. The, the great engine of capitalism. Uh, you can argue, you know, people obviously continue to argue about the benefits and deficits of capitalism, but it's still the economic, the economic underpinning of this country. And that was embraced and promoted uh, by the Republican Party, not the agrarian-based uh, Southern Democratic Party, which had an extremely reactionary, even almost medieval idea of what what society should be like. Um, and uh, with regard to what, what was that radical radicalism in the North, the Civil War, there's a couple of different parts. Part of it is a, 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 a radicalism of civil rights that's, that, that begins, begins with emancipation and pushes toward ultimately the enfranchisement uh, and granting of actual civil rights to, to African-Americans uh, uh, as a whole. Uh, but it's also, as you were saying earlier, it has to do with a determination to fight the war to a conclusion uh, that uh, based on the argument that slavery has sapped the United States morally, economically, and on the part of many, even spiritually, over the course of the country's existence. Uh, and it was slavery that had led to secession and you couldn't paper it over anymore. Go down, finish the war. And that counted as radicalism at the time. And it was proven to be valid because it did require crushing the South in order to really bring, uh, 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 bring an end to secession. There were no half measures ultimately possible. Is it fair to say that both sets of radicals thought a conflict was inevitable or that 
it would take a conflict beyond the usual compromises to settle this once and for all? Um, <laughs> we're talking about kind of a moving, a moving, an evolving uh, set of opinions here. Uh, in 1861, nobody expected a four-year, North or South, expected a four-year war, hundreds of thousands of dead, uh, tragedy and trauma that would reach into virtually every American family in, in some way. Uh, uh, prodigious expenditures that were unimaginable before the war. Uh, uh, so... Uh, the South was much more geared. I'm speaking very generally here. The South had its own diversity as well. Uh, I mean, there were sections of the South that essentially defected from the Confederacy, as there were sections of the North and I dare say parts of Indiana <laughs> that defected from the Union war effort. Yeah. We have to well. own that. Yes. Yeah, Southern Indiana was known for its Confederate sympathies for sure. Um, uh, so, uh, it took a while before before both Northerners and Southerners recognized that that if, after the Battle of Bull Run, certainly certainly by 1862 and the, the collapse of McClellan's uh, brilliant brilliantly planned, miserably fought uh, Peninsular campaign in in Virginia. Um, but I, as I was saying a minute ago or two ago. The South was more militarized than than the North, significantly so. And this often this is it a fact, a truth that is often neglected. Why was that? There were militias all over the South that had been in in place for generations uh, as as um, guarantors against slave uprisings. Correct. Uh, right. Uh, and especially from about the 1830s on when there was increasing anxiety in the South about uh, supposed, only imaginary at the time, supposed invasions like the uh, John Brown invasion, which was blown vastly out of proportion or the, you know, an exaggerated notion of the penetration of the Underground Railroad into the South. When's Nat Turner? Is that 1831? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, The Nat Turner Rebellion? Yes. When Southerners always had in their mind from the the idea of slave rebellion, they did occur more frequently than people are generally aware. They were mostly minor. They were localized. They all failed. They were all bloodily, very, very bloodily repressed. But nonetheless, especially given that there were states that had majority enslaved population, South Carolina, Mississippi, and others, very close to parity, the fear uh, of such a rebellion on a vast scale was omnipresent. Southerners had only to look at what happened in Haiti in the 1790s, which was uh, horrifically bloody on the parts of all concerned, uh, both the slaughter of blacks and the slaughter of whites, Many refugees from Haiti came to the United States, to Baltimore, to to to, to Charleston, uh, the Nat Turner Rebellion. This is in the minds of Southerners. Hence, you have militia, you have armed patrollers, 
everywhere, virtually every county in the South, uh, with carte blanche to treat any Black person regarded as having left the farm without permission in any way at all. I mean, violence, physical violence, rape of women, uh, with 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 no no repercussions at all. Uh, there was no. So this didn't exist in the North. In the North, you, you had you know, a chowder and marching bands here and there and 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 a few militias that duded themselves up in archaic uniforms. But it was not a militarized region. Given your extensive research and knowledge of this time period, did you find yourself surprised by anything you discovered while writing this book? That's a good question. Um yeah, uh, a few things. Uh, one of the people I write about at length uh, was representative Clement Vallandigham uh, of Ohio, from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Vallandigham is best known uh, as the leading opponent of the war in the U.S. Congress. He was uh, ferociously anti-war. He vowed never to vote a cent uh, for the war effort. Uh, and uh, uh, was charismatic. He, he he fostered a lot of resistance to the war in Ohio, but also in in the Midwest. Generally speaking, as time went on, he was eventually gerrymandered out of his seat, and he was expelled to the Confederacy. Uh, the Confederacy didn't actually want him, and they 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 saw that he made his way to Canada. And the story goes on. It's a long story. Uh, but politically, the Landingham is repellent by today's standards, which I share. He was intensely racist, intensely anti-Black, uh, and used language pretty much identical to that used in the Confederacy. Uh, he, uh, he talked around the idea of, of secession of the upper Midwest, uh, 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 which he saw to some degree correctly, not entirely, as economically completely linked to the South via the Mississippi River. Um, and it's having a future with the Confederacy. Uh, he, he disliked New England. Uh, and you can't read what uh, Vallandigham said or admire anything he did by today's, frankly, more enlightened standards. Uh, however, Clement Vallandigham was clearly uh, one, one of the great political dissenters in American history. He was he was persecuted for his political beliefs. Uh, he he, uh, I mean, not just suffered verbal opprobrium, which was, if you think political speech in twenty twenty one is rough, you should read what 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 people said to at each, to and at each other politically in eighteen sixty one. Not just that, but but rather he was, uh, uh, as I said, driven out of office. He was arrested in Ohio and Dayton by by soldiers. He was expelled, uh, uh, and later, when he ran for in absentia from Canada for governor of Ohio, uh, uh, he was. Uh, subjected to, I mean, nonstop smear campaigns, alleging that he was the head 
of a traitorous, subversive organization. Now, the jury is still out on that. Uh, he was indeed affiliated in some degree with a traitorous, subversive organization. But is that is that the Knights of the Golden Circle? Yes, or, okay. and and uh, affiliated. Yes, uh, he didn't reject their support. They treated him as its leader, and there are some equivocal. Um, there are equivocal documents. Okay. But nonetheless, you know, it's it's hard not to think of him in the same uh, way as um, people on the left who were great dissenters. Eugene Debs, uh, Norman Thomas, uh, uh, and dare I say, even some of the great African-American dissenters of the 20th century. Uh, it, 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 it kind of jolts one's sensibilities to put him in the same box with them, but in terms of a challenge to the system, uh, to politics as usual, a determination to say what he had to say, um, he was, I, I, I can't say he was heroic because I can't respect what he had to say, but the fact that he said it uh, is in the great American tradition. So he was a surprise that I, 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 I uh, wrote a great deal about him and I, I felt I had to give him a fair shake. Uh, uh, even though I, as you can tell, I've repeated myself, I found him pretty repugnant politically. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is Fergus Bordewick, who wrote a terrific book called Congress at War, How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Which of the people who you've studied during this time period when writing this book did you come to admire, if you can give us one? Sure. And, and which one did you find, besides Mr. Vallandingham, which one did you find particularly the most loathsome? <laughs> okay. Um, I like that question. Uh, well, the, the person I, uh, indeed, whom I most admired, I think, was Thaddeus Stevens, uh, a Republican congressman, long-serving congressman from uh, Pennsylvania, the, the small city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, originally born in Vermont. He was a New Englander by birth, made his career as a lawyer and a political man in Pennsylvania, regarded before he he was elected to national office as probably the smartest lawyer in the state of Pennsylvania, which is saying a lot. Right. Um, and uh, he was so respected and, and so forceful and politically creative. Um that uh, he became essentially the floor leader for the Republican Party uh, as soon as he entered Congress. Uh, now, there, there was a, the structure of Congress was a bit different in 1861. I won't, I won't digress into that. It's kind of too deep in the weeds. But the election uh, dates were different. When it was convened was different. They weren't there all the time. That's something that came through your book. They have all these different dates where where 
some of the delegates, some of the congressmen are there because the states have done their thing and some of them aren't. It's very patchwork. So it, and you, you do a really sharp job of explaining that so we can go, well, why the hell aren't they doing anything? Well, they can't do anything because they don't have a quorum. Well, why don't they have a quorum? Well, that's because this state, X, Y, or Z, hasn't done its election yet, so they haven't sent their representatives or their senators. It, it was very illuminating, that point. It's something I had never read before. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a sign- what you're describing was a really significant problem at several points uh, uh, during the war congresses. So Thaddeus Stevens, uh, I'm gonna, I'll give you a little picture of him. He's uh, he was a uh, he had a rather muscular, stocky body. Uh, he had a condition called alopecia which meant that he was prematurely bald as a young man. So he wore a rather flamboyant wig, um, which is in uh, the Lancaster County Historical Society's Museum, worth seeing. Uh, and he, he once rather rather dashingly, when asked by a, 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 a girl uh, if, if he really wore a wig, he tore it off his head and gave it to her, you know. Um, so he was a man with a bit of style. He also had a club foot. Uh, which is significant in a number of ways. One, because it uh, it meant that he built he couldn't live the kind of physical, hard physical life that people growing up hard scrabble in rural Vermont did, and he made his life intellectually uh, uh, well educated, Dartmouth College, and also it, it. I think it was one of the factors that enabled him to feel a deep affinity uh, with anybody, uh, African-Americans in particular, who who didn't have a fair shake in society. He'd been humiliated as a boy. He'd been bullied, badgered because of his deformity. But it it made him stronger, not weaker. Uh, His tool was language. Uh, His speeches are brilliant brilliant. He was famous for them. People would pack the galleries if Stevens was going to speak. Um, Viciously. I mean, he he, yeah. he spared no enemy. He was very caustic, but people loved his sarcasm. It was, uh, it was entertaining. Uh, that was a style that was much favored in the 19th century, but he was a master of it. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, we talked about this before the podcast started, forgive me, but since we're talking about Stevens, Let's bring up the movie Lincoln. What did you think of Tommy Lee Jones's uh, portrayal? And what did you think of how they wrote for Stevens, including using some of his direct quotes uh, from his speeches and from his writings in the movie? What did you think of that portrayal of him? Well, I think the movie was terrific. I think it was terrific. And uh, some some historian colleagues nitpick small details that nobody else would uh, uh, pay attention to, but I thought it was a fine movie, and I thought the p- portrayal of Stevens was, on the whole, excellent. I like Tommy Lee Jones. It was a, it, it, it was a, I think a very finely modulated performance. I think it, he captured Stevens's affect uh, with 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 one with one to me uh, kind of striking shortcoming, which is to say. Uh, Stevens, as I said, lived in Pennsylvania. He was from northern Vermont. And to, and to hear him speaking with a <laughs> Texas accent was uh, a bit challenging for me. But uh, <laughs> I, I will also say that, that the film took, took a significant liberty 
uh, with with Stevens's relationship with uh, Lydia Smith, his uh, uh, business partner, and sometimes she's called housekeeper, but she was actually a business partner uh, who was uh, a uh, an African American woman. The movie portrayed that as a essentially a common law marriage, which there's no evidence that it was. It was often said, uh, usually as an accusation against, you know, miscegenation, racial mixing against Stevens. Uh, But there's there's really no no persuasive proof that it was that. Uh, uh, Stevens, very unusually for his time, had no color prejudice. Even abolitionists, even many radicals, basically were pretty pretty bigoted by today's standards. They were all for the principle of, of fairness, civil rights, and equality institutionally, but they personally weren't very comfortable being around black people. Yeah, you just was, answered my next question. I was going to ask that. We, we, we have them as like, oh, they wanted all these amazing things and end slavery and fought the war, but they didn't want... And correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. They didn't want ex-slaves moving to the north and taking these jobs, and they didn't want ex-slaves moving north and marrying their white daughters. That this undercurrent of of racism, as you were just describing, much more virulent than anything we can imagine today, that existed even though they sent their sons south to end slavery at a certain point when the war became about slavery like okay that's all well and good and i'll send my son to march with sherman to the sea but just don't come up here and don't don't uh, upend our way of life here in new york or michigan or wherever well okay there was a spectrum there was a spectrum uh in north the northern democratic party uh the landingham's party Racism was virulent. It was open. The 1864 election was very possibly the most racially vicious election in American history. Um, That's a great point. Sure was. uh, McClellan and McClellan, the Democrat nominee, former General McClellan, was a big part of it. He was. He was. He was. He was viciously anti-black. You read his his letters to his wife, private letters referring to black people. Pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. Uh, So that's one end of the spectrum. Amongst Republicans, the spectrum is pretty pretty wide, ranging from uh, uh, men and women. Women can't vote, of course, or hold office, but they were active in other ways. uh, Who came out of the abolitionist movement? And within the abolitionist movement, there were people like Stevens, Thaddeus Stevens, whom we're talking about who really believed in in social equality. That's to say, um, uh, we can, uh, no barriers, no social barriers, and and, uh, did not object to the idea of marriage between uh, uh, blacks and whites. Um, Through others, even abolitionists, as you were just pointing out quite correctly, who uh, uh, were uncomfortable with social social equality, but tried to accept it to those who could not accept it to fairly, cons- but in the context of the time, conservative Republicans who, as I said earlier, 
we're absolutely all for for legal equality, legal equality, but absolutely uh, uh, repelled by the social equality. It's very mixed. It's very mixed. There's a vast amount of 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 sentimental and intellectual difference among these people, all boiling around in a like a huge kettle in the same party, the Republican Party, and then stir in the Democrats, and it's it, it, it's even wilder. Who did you find the most loathsome? <laughs> well, um, I, I think in a way, I, I, I have to say, although this might seem like a contradiction, uh, Clement Vlandingham, whom we've already talked at, at length about, because I, I went very deep into his character and his personality, and he mattered. This was a guy whose bigotry mattered. He influenced a lot of people. Uh, he was charismatic amongst his followers. He influenced had a lot of sway in the Midwest, uh, uh, Indiana, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. Um, and uh, he, he influenced people for the, for, for the bad. Uh, and even though I, 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 I cited him earlier as, as, a, as, a, as a great case of an American dissenter, he was a dissenter for things that I don't think I, I, I mean, I absolutely couldn't respect. Uh, I didn't yeah, like, you, I, I didn't Eugene, like, I didn't if Eugene like Debs had got his, you're right. If Eugene Debs had gotten his way. Okay. Maybe the first part of the 20th century would be completely different. If Vallandingham had gotten his way, the entire history of the country beginning in 1860 ish, 1861 would have been radically different to the detriment of everyone. That's a great yes. point about, about the dissenters in, in that tradition in American history. Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite so. That, that uh, so I wrestled a lot with him more than I wrestled with anybody else in the book. I gave him quite a bit of ink. <laughs> uh, we are talking with Fergus Bordewick, who wrote a book that is superb, called "Congress at War: How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America." We've got a little bit of time left, so let's talk about the subtitle of your book. How did Republican reformers defy Lincoln? Well, Lincoln, Lincoln, when he came into office, uh, one was not at all committed to to general emancipation. Lincoln was never an abolitionist. He personally detested slavery. That's that's clear. People who want to accuse. Uh, some people in our present day world who want to uh, uh, criticize Lincoln as a as a an alleged racist, as a uh, 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 and and so on, are, are fundamentally wrong. I mean, he evolved greatly from a kind of garden variety bias as a younger man. He was born in Kentucky, after all, uh, but he was he he, he was a uh, came from a very gritty background, as we all know, and and he he could see how that how the degradation of white working people wasn't all that different from the degradation of black working people. He evolved, and and uh, uh, emancipation. He came to believe in emancipation. <clears throat> did he ever come to believe in social equality? Maybe not quite, but maybe he did. He was on that track. 
but at any a, rate, there's a great line in that in the movie Lincoln uh, where he says, "I don't know you." Remember when he and and Mrs. Keckley, the the actress playing Mrs. Keckley, and they're 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 paused outside the White House after some event. And Mrs. Keckley, who was uh, African-American female friend of Mary Todd Lincoln, and they have a short conversation and Lincoln looks at her and goes, I suppose I'll get used to you. It just wasn't that sort of interaction like today we take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's well put. That's a, that's a good illustration, I think. Uh, but Lincoln would have gotten used in time. We don't know what Reconstruction would have been like had he lived. We don't know. Uh, but anyway, at any rate, you're asking me, how did Congress defy Lincoln? Uh, well, one, <clears throat> Congress defied Lincoln over, over equality, which is to say the radicals in Congress rapidly ascended to the leadership of the Republican Party because they saw how the, what the war would and could do before Lincoln did. It would have to be fought to a finish. They defied Lincoln uh, in in arguing, as we've said earlier, for a hard war. You know, uh, uh, beat the South, beat them on the battlefield, uh, invade the South, end slavery. Uh, Lincoln was quite prepared to retain slavery within the Union. He he made, he made it clear repeatedly early in the war, and uh, he didn't uh, embrace emancipation, even as a tactical gesture until uh, late in 1862, or maybe the summer of 1862. Uh, The emancipation was issued January 1st, 63, though he signaled it about six months earlier. And that was strategic. I said tactical, I really mean strategic. He saw it as a way of undercutting Southern power, but he had to be brought to that. And one reason Congress mattered during the Civil War is that it was constantly pushing Lincoln um, to fight harder, to pick better generals. Uh, I mean, Lincoln knew nothing about military affairs when he came into office. He admitted it. He didn't pretend to. Uh, and he did his best to educate himself uh, about things military in the course of the war, and he got better. He, he, he was a man who could learn, and he did learn. Uh, but his choice of generals early on was, was particularly his commitment to McClellan, who was contemptuous of Lincoln. Contemptuous. He treated him like dirt, frankly. It's shocking Shocking when you read accounts exactly of the right. interaction. Uh, so uh, Congress defied him on, on war measures. Um, and on race primarily. How did the Congress at war, the Republican reformers, remake America? You do a terrific job in the book about what Congress did, what it enacted that was strategic beyond the war. There were four things that I wanted to, to prompt you about. If you could just give us a minute, maybe on each one, the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railway Act, the creation of the Department of Agriculture, and for those of you listening who love Purdue University, the Moral Land Grant College Act. These four acts of Congress had ramifications 
far beyond the period 1861 to 1865. Is this how the Republican reformers remade America outside of the war and slavery? Uh, yes. I mean, these are all, all the all the things you, you mentioned are not generally described as war measures, but they were measures that could only be taken because the Republican Party uh, controlled the government, uh, had had uh, ironclad majorities in Congress uh, <clears throat> during the war. And they were perceived at the time to some degree as war measures. OK, let's start with the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, the idea for one had been brooded since the 1840s, since the 1840s, and bottled up, um, stonewalled by the South, as, as like these other measures that we're talking about here. Why was that? Because Southerners who dominated the government, despite being very much a minority of voters, uh, who that's dominated the government, uh, and the presidency, not, that's right, did not want uh, free states. Uh, metastasizing across the West. Uh, ra- the railroad, they knew, would bring f- more northern settlers, of whom there were just who are more numerous, northern settlers and immigrants abroad all across the West, and the states that they settled would become free states. Uh, the South stymied that. And uh, for the same reason, uh, 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 blocked the... Ho- a, a Homestead Act, which also had been talked about for years. Interestingly enough, its main proponent through the 1850s was Andrew Johnson, uh, mm. who became Lincoln's uh, second vice president. Lincoln's worst decision as president was permitting Johnson onto the ticket. We could talk about that in a bit if you feel like I, it. I, will, I won't argue. <laughs> uh, didn't have to happen. His first vice president was excellent. He was, he was, a, he was an abolitionist from Maine, Hannibal Hamlin, who should have... Uh, who would have changed America uh, uh, had he been president during Reconstruction. That was parenthetical. Uh, At any rate, uh, the South also blocked homesteading, as we said. The idea of land-grant colleges was very much a New England idea. Uh, uh, New England had more schools than any other part of the country. The South had the smallest number of schools. Uh, Very interesting subject in its own right, which I don't really deal with at length in the book, but uh, part of the New England vision for America was a well-educated citizenry, uh, public education. New England had public education. The South did not. One of the things that the Southern states resisted most violently during Reconstruction was free public education. Uh, We won't go into Reconstruction here, but uh, it was part of what, what you have to call a liberal, and I use that in a, in a broad sense. I'm not talking sure. so much about today's context. You know, a broad liberal vision of America, of what American society could be, of a well-educated voting uh, uh, population, which everybody participated on a legally equal basis, put aside social equality, Okay. Uh, and the idea of land-grant colleges uh, fit perfectly into that. Uh, and uh, the the uh, Agriculture Department, which is probably the least sexy piece of legislation passed during the entire Civil War of, of great consequence, uh, 
uh, also was part of that that liberal vision of using government to enable the growth and development and flourishing of society. Democrats of that era tended to be anti-big government. They resisted big government. They didn't want federal activity in anything. The Republicans were the party of big government at the time. And big, uh, it did expand. Government did expand dramatically during the Civil War. Yes, the government uh, bureaucracies expanded to manage the war and other things. But uh, land grant, uh, sorry, um, the agriculture department would help in conjunction with 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 the colleges to to uh, spread uh, knowledge about modern farming uh, through every agricultural part of the country, everywhere, and then including in the Northeast. Uh, most of America was, of course, then farmland. Uh, um, we're we're now much much less a farming society than we were 150 years ago. But these were very far sighted, enlightened uh, uh, concepts for 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 government facilitating uh, uh, the healthy development of modern society. All all these aspects. Now another aspect, though I should say, of the uh, transcontinental railroad, which is uh, along with homesteading, are a bit different. There was, a, there was this huge question of what the West was to be and what was the United States to be with great ramifications for what happened to Indians, Native Americans. But the railroad had an additional significance because it, was, it would bind the West Coast to the East. Uh, and there was very real anxiety in 1861 uh, that the West Coast would, might secede because it was viable. It, 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 was, it was California because of its gold, Nevada, silver. It was viable uh, as, a, as an autonomous region. And the railroad would, would bind the two areas. It would also make it much easier and cheaper to bring precious metals uh, uh, east for the war effort. Of all the activities and, and events and laws that Congress enacted during the American Civil War, where do you think they failed or where they allowed their zeal to uh, cause them to make errors that perhaps a little bit more moderation would have prevented? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I, I look at it quite that way. I mean, I, I, I think let me preface this by, by saying, uh, one one of the things to take away from my book, I would hope, is that it's a portrait of dynamic creative government. I think we're in an era today when there's an enormous well of suspicion and distaste for government, for politicians, for Washington, and for Congress. I, I, I mean, I don't have to allude to recent events to to, sure. to underscore the point. Uh, and I, I find that extremely uh, worrisome, not even perhaps poisonous for for the system that that we we claim to honor uh, our, our constitutional inheritance and so forth. And I think I've tried to show that that members of Congress. I've done this in a couple of books, but in, in members of Congress during the Civil War. Uh, 
were extremely determined and creative in solving the nation's problems of the time. Uh, they, they weren't, um, it wasn't peaceful. Uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the figures I, I've written about, uh, William Pitt Fessenden from Maine, a senator whom I admire as well, uh, said that there, there is no quiet in a democracy. He's right. It's mm. never quiet. It's always contentious. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of contention. We shouldn't be afraid of argument, even violent verbal argument. That's our, our heritage. It's it's what the founders bequeathed to us. Uh, okay. Um, and I think that uh, uh, we see during the uh, during during uh, the Civil War Congresses, members of Congress doing the people's duty. Some of them were brilliant. A lot of them were kind of mediocre. Some of them, some of them were drunks. Uh, you, know, you, had, you know, pretty much the same assortment of personalities and, 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 and shortcomings as you find in any Congress, including our present day uh, Congress. No discussion about the Congress during the Civil War is complete. And this is the last thing I wanted to ask you was uh, we mentioned Benjamin Wade, a senator from Ohio, who appears in the movie Lincoln just about as you would expect him, kind of a scowling, grumpy of old man, uh, but brilliant in his own way. And he was, and correct me if I'm wrong, certainly probably the, the, the engine behind the creation and the activities of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, which was a congressional committee to oversee Lincoln's handling of the war and overall strategy and the and the the activities or lack of activities on behalf of the generals and and basically a, a huge investigative committee it was a thorn in Lincoln's side in, in many ways. Certainly a thorn in the side of unsuccessful or unenergetic generals uh, you write a lot about this this committee it's gone down in history as a little more than a fair bit of notoriety because it's seen as again a contrast to how lincoln performed as commander-in-chief and then it seems like the committee maybe starts to wither away maybe a little bit in prominence as grant starts to come up and and you push back on that if you want to grant is so successful and then, and then is ultimately after a bit of unsuccess, <clears throat> triumphant. Uh, what do you think about the joint committee on the conduct of the war? Do you think it was necessary? Do you think it was something that was, uh, that did a good job? And, and what do you think of it in terms of how it's gone down in American history? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating subject and, um, uh, Largely, I think, forgotten or ignored even by people who write and think about the Civil War. Uh, uh, I admire Wade. He was a two-fisted, uh, take-no-prisoners, uh, uh, unionist, abolitionist, um, very experienced politically, very effective in Congress. And yes, he was the spark plug behind the Joint Committee, um, uh, because he came away from the Battle of Bull Run, which he witnessed. He was on the exactly. battlefield. Mm -hmm. And he he played a significant, although uh, not widely known role, during the 
chaotic rout and retreat. Afterward, he was so shocked and angry at seeing federal troops fleeing the battlefield. He blocked the road with his carriage. He he uh, he had a couple of companions, including a couple of senators. Uh, they 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 pulled out their rifles and they threatened to shoot soldiers if they didn't stop running. And they held they held that stopped that route long enough for more organized units to come up and take control. So I, I give you that anecdote because it's, it's, it's illustrative of, of it's Wade. Very, it's very been Wade. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so the committee, as you, as you um, uh, very clearly described it, uh, was, uh, yes, a thorn in Lincoln's side pushing, when I've said several times in this conversation about Republicans in Congress pushing for a hard war, the, the the wedge of that push is the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Uh, its members are vocal. They're led by Wade. They're intense. Uh, they they had virtual carte blanche to haul in, to invite, let's say, to be more polite, to invite <clears throat> serving officers of the Army to come in and be interviewed. Others might say interrogated. And it is one of the best resources in existence for what uh, officers were thinking in real time during the waging of many of the famous battles of the war. It's an incredible resource, by the way, for any of your listeners who want to go deeper into how the war was fought. Uh, All the records of the Joint Committee are, are online by the Library of Congress. You can Google anything. The reports were copious, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, uh, they're not too difficult to to uh, maneuver through. Um, uh, I think the committee served a very valuable purpose by pushing for a hard war uh, early on, and 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 also pushing for uh, the the recruitment of uh, black volunteers, which was extremely controversial. It was very controversial. But it's hard to, hard to believe that the war could have been won by the North without the 170,000 uh, African-Americans who, who, uh, who fought when, when uh, Union recruitment was petering out. Uh, uh, and I will mention also parenthetically that they, the committee investigated things like procurement and, and the production of shoddy war materials and investigated war crimes, including really significantly the massacre at Fort Pillow in 1864, uh, when Nathan Bedford Forrest's Confederate cavalry massacred, and I don't mean just killed a few people, massacred uh, Black Union troops defending a fort that they captured in Tennessee near Memphis, which was the worst war crime committed on American soil, uh, apart from the Indian Wars. And it's it's a travesty that this is not an event that that is is still in historical memory. Uh, I wish that, the attention and that they were they were naming schools after Nathan Bedford Forrest into the 1960s. Quite so. Now, uh, to, to finish answering your question, uh, how has that committee been seen in history? Well, generally, generally, it has not been treated very well. Why is that? Well, one, because it was a radical committee and uh, led by Wade, Zechariah Chandler of Michigan and, and so on. And the, the reputation of the radicals 
plummeted during Reconstruction and the long Jim Crow era that emphasized reconciliation between North and South at the cost of of the rights of Black Americans, Black Southerners particularly. Uh, So it's only in the last generation that the radicals have been have gotten renewed positive attention uh, on one hand. In addition, Harry Truman particularly detested the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Uh, Harry Truman, as uh, many people may know, uh, was a very active senator from Missouri before he became uh, FDR's vice president. And he was responsible for investigating um, corruption and military procurement and stuff of that sort during World War II. And he, like many military men, both during the Civil War and after, uh, really, really hated the idea of civilians poking their noses into military decision making. Uh, uh, The generals didn't like it during the Civil War and the generals didn't like it during World War II. Uh, and Harry Truman, in, in in some of his own writing, particularly cited the Joint Committee uh, as a, a prime example of what government had no business doing. Uh, I don't agree with Harry uh, <laughs> on, on that. I think it did a pretty good job. Sometimes they went overboard in pushing uh, for the army to promote officers who were more politically aligned with them, who weren't necessarily great generals. That is a, that is a blot on their on their on their record, uh, but on the other hand, they were they were very valuable in in helping to to hobble McClellan and finally finally get Lincoln Lincoln to disencumber himself of of the general who should have won the war in eighteen sixty two but couldn't bring himself to do it. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Are you ready, Fergus? Fire away. Number one, what was your first job? <laughs> My first job, I worked in uh, a, 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 a city park in, in, in Yonkers, New York, where I grew up, walking around with a stick with a nail on the end, picking, picking up litter. <laughs> and number two, what was your first concert? Uh, the first one I remember was at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, and I was probably about seven or eight years old. Do you remember the opera? Yes, it was uh, The Masked Ball. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Well, that, boy, we gotta, I got to give you a short answer to that one. Uh, I will just tell you what my favorite book is, uh, and I don't know whether it's the one book that anybody else should read. It's uh, Thomas Mann, the German writer, Thomas Mann's magnificent novel, The Magic Mountain, about uh europe it, it's a it's a tremendous investigation of of what europe was uh, on the brink of world before world war one it's just a wonderful novel i've read it about five times all right this is a this one's even tougher are you ready fire away if you could witness any event in history be there as it happens which event would you choose well i course, that depends on whether it's one I could survive, I suppose. You live. I live. Okay. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, Mount Vesuvius, Pompeii. But That's I, a great but I'd answer. Have to <laughs> we have not had that. That's a terrific answer. Uh, number five, last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, 
living today. Two hours off the record. Talk about anything you want. Whom would you choose? Living today. Hmm. Uh, well, again, I, 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 I have to say it's going to depend whether it's somebody I can get along with, you know. Uh, and you live. In and you live. You know, I mean, nobody wants to sit at a dinner with somebody brilliant who's just yawning in your face, you know, like, like a girl I once took on a date uh, <laughs> much earlier in my life. Uh, and uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to give you a, a, a soft answer to this one, because uh, I, I'm going to say Joe Biden. Why? Uh, why? Well, I like Joe Biden. I met Joe Biden in Washington a number of years ago. I never thought the man would be president, but I I, I have grown to like him a great deal. And and uh, he is a guy who is a consummate creative politician of the sort that I like. Which is just this has nothing to do with whether one might agree with his particular policies or not. But he's a man who really knows how the engine runs and knows how, how, how to make it work. And I think we, I, I admire people, no matter what their background is. Uh, I like Roy Blunt in the Senate, by the way, to pick somebody from the other party. But uh, I, I'd say uh, Joe Biden, because I feel, I, feel I, I, I wouldn't bore him and he wouldn't bore me. That's important. No boredom in your two-hour conversation. Terrific. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been author, historian, Fergus Bordewick, who wrote what is one of my favorite books on the Civil War, quite frankly. I have to say I learned a lot because I hadn't read about this in quite a while. The book is called Congress at War, How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America. Thank you very much for your time for the podcast. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Robert. I enjoyed it as well. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 